Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. All right. Are you okay with Subway bread not being bread? Wait. I know. But what is huh? What is it if it's not bread? Are, are, How, is this not bread? How is it not bread? Are you okay with Subway bread not being real bread? This has hit me harder than the than the breaking news here. Um, <laughs> my goodness! Tell you, buddy, it's fake. It's fake subs. Oh, I don't. Wow, my world is sh- is shaken. Okay, I'm yeah, are you okay with it? Subway. Though. Yeah, I, I'm still I, gonna I eat it. Subway way too many times. Right. What's your what's your what's your go to bread? Italian herbs and cheese for me. Um, I used to do Italian herbs and cheese, but I've just gone to the the plain white bread. Um, but uh, wow, I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I okay. I'm, I'm, What's your go to sub, Jason? When you go to Subway? All right, I'll uh, break this down. All right, oh, so dear. it's Italian herbs and cheese. Um, Italian herbs and cheese with uh, with toasted, um, and then I get um, uh, cold cut, cold cut combo. Um, I get uh, all the vegetables in there except for cucumber. I hate cucumber. Uh, and then I put chipotle southwest, right? So a little bit of honey mustard, a little bit of salt and pepper. You know, don't want to go too much. And get that cut in half. Oh, best sandwich right there. You know what Jason is? Jason's the guy that you can hear the staff groaning when he comes in. Oh, man, not the Veloster guy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Quick, turn on BTS so he's in a good mood. All right, um, here's the clip. Are you okay with Subway bread not being real bread? The starch used in Subway sandwiches is too sugary to meet the definition of bread, according to a ruling by Ireland's highest court. The fast food chain was hoping to save some dough through a tax break for serving a staple food item. But according to the legal distinction, the bread's sugar-to-flour content is roughly five times too high to qualify. It applies to all six of the company's bread options. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Um, yeah, always fresh. I wonder how Jared feels about this because Jared was really working hard on that diet. And if he knew that he could have lost much more weight with so, uh, so much sugar in his diet, he probably could have changed his diet. Just saying. Man. Every time, every time, man, it always comes down to dollars. It's just about the taxes. That's all it is. It's all about the taxes, man. Because the tax man cometh going to take your money. And take your sandwich. The way it goes. You take your sandwich. All right. Um, yeah, all right. There you go. Subway sub, uh, Subway bread in Ireland. Too much sugar to be called real bread. Therefore, it's not essential food. And you got to pay the taxes. Okay. Are you okay? Are you okay with swearing parrots? <laughs> and I don't mean like five-year-olds that listen to their, you know, drunk uncle. Um, b- before we go into this, when uh, when you were talking with uh, with Charles Adler and oh, in the, swearing carrots in the crossover, uh, maybe he misheard you, or maybe he he misspoke and said swearing carrots. But I was beside myself. 
with laughter. When, with the carrots? That was pretty funny. <laughs> I, you, I didn't have the heart to correct them. If you picture a swearing carrot, it just forget about it, man. The whole night's over. But um, swearing parrots. I'm okay with swearing parrots. Um, cursing is one of the best expressions of language, I feel. Okay. All right, Jason. Um, what, yeah. what, do you, what do you think about the swearing foul-mouthed parrots? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm okay with that. I I actually think it'd be pretty funny uh, to see an animal swear. So yeah, I'm I'm I don't I personally don't swear a lot, but uh, but hearing animals do it, I mean, that'll uh, bring a smile to my face. All right, there it is. Are you okay with swearing parrots? Swearing parrots in a UK wildlife park had to be removed. This is Jabri Thomas from Ten News in Tampa Bay. Shut the front door. Polly wanna, what did he just say? Well, five parrots at a wildlife park over in the UK got in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, I, I can yeah, relate to that a little bit. And, we're, and they were removed from being out with guests because they've been swearing too much. And I'm not talking about the kind of swearing that boy band All For One did. I'm talking about these birds were cussing, y'all. The five parrots, <laughs> I'm serious. These five parrots got to their new home back in August and clearly they had some fun. Now, parrots actually swear to get a response or reaction from guests. And, uh, you know, guests were reacting like crazy over this. If you heard, heard a bird say, ah! I'm not going to say it. But anyway, they're now in different colonies away from the guests ears. So the question of the morning is, if you wanted to know, we put this in here. So how do parrots talk? Hmm. So according to the Exotic Direct, parrots talk by modifying their air that flows over their cernix to make sounds. I'm going to make sure we take <laughs> Fork you, you fork and fork. <laughs> Did he say cervix? I, th uh, I don't know, but we got to listen to this again. Shut yep. the front door. Polywana. <laughs> Polywana what? Probably All right. Um, so the story is this. So what happened was, is that these parrots, because I, I think the guy, uh, this Jabari, uh, Jabari Thomas is so good and so animated, but I don't think he actually got to the story. So what happened was, is inside the UK Wildlife Park, the parrots were swearing so much when little kids were walking around, they're dropping F-bombs all over the place. And so what happened was, is one would start talking and then the other would start talking and they would just start talking louder and louder and louder and they would sort of get each other riled up. And there was four or five of them, I believe, and they're all cussing and swearing and yelling. And this is a wildlife park where kids walk around. So they had to separate the parrots so they could cool their jets and stop with the foul, foul mouths. So. Hey, can we hear the beginning of that one more time? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was pure gold. Shut the front door, Polly. Wanna? What did he just say? Well, <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Ah, uh, that's so good. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You are more than welcome to contribute here on our. Um, are you okay's uh, swearing parrots? If one of them swore at me too much, I'd uh, it'd soon be in the stew pot. I don't know how much meat's on a parrot. I'm guessing it's not much. Kind of like a skinny dog with big fluffy fur, you know? When you pull those feathers off, I'm guessing that's a pretty skinny little animal under there. I'm just guessing. I'm not recommending um, that that would be a thing. Anyway, um, another text came in, and I think this is funny. It's from Anna is the name that's attached to it. It says, you guys should stop promoting giant corporate garbage food. Buy local. <laughs> okay, just to be clear, when we uh, make fun of Subway sandwiches having too much sugar, 
and it's not real bread, we're not promoting. Just to be clear, <laughs> otherwise we'd have a lot more sandwiches in the fr- in the fridge. Yeah. So when we tell stories like that, even though it's from Ireland, uh, there's nobody going to be showing up saying, hey, by the way, here's a bunch of free sandwiches. Thank you very much. Yes, sure. Buy local. But just to be clear, this is where I'm going to put on my business hat for a second. Uh, Subway is a franchise and franchisees own the stores. And who is the franchisee? Your neighbors, your brothers and sisters down the street. So if you shop at a franchisee store, you are shopping local. Don't be don't forget that. Those are local business owners that own that, that invested that money. So if you do shop at places like that, all of those franchises, whether it's your Jugo Juice or your Subway or whatever, your Taco Time, you are absolutely supporting local, even though it is a gigantic, biggest behemoth uh, company in the world. 877-399-9898. Man, so many of these... um, um so many text messages coming in. It's really hard to keep up tonight. Thank you for that. You're welcome to call. We love the phone calls too. 877-399-9898. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay with a pregnant woman fighting a shark? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not against, if you're going to go and fight a shark, I mean, go for it. You know, you're brave. And if you think you can take that animal, Go for it. But if you're pregnant, uh, it could obviously be a risk. I think you got to tone it down when you're carrying the baby, right? You'd think like you, fist fights would be something that you try to stay out of. Yeah. I'm guessing. I mean, unless it was like a swearing shark and then you needed to punch it in the nose <laughs> to smarten it up. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, cu- I'm more curious than okay. More curious than okay with it? Are you curious? <laughs> Matt says yes. (laughs) Are you okay? Well, a pregnant woman came to her husband's rescue during a shark attack in the Florida Keys. Hauled him out of the water, out of the predator's reach. So for more with this report, this is Ian Margol from WPLG, WPLG Local 10 News. So this is obviously a very rare occurrence, especially here in the Keys. But the rescuers I spoke with today say this man was very lucky that he got care quickly because this was a bad bite. 911, where's your emergency? We're out of the system. Where are my husband? My son of mine discovered by a shark in his shoulder. We need help immediately. That frantic 911 call was made moments after 30-year-old Andrew Eddy was attacked by a shark on Sunday. Eddie's family was snorkeling near the Sombrero Key Lighthouse about four miles offshore from Marathon. But when he jumped in, an eight to ten foot bull shark grabbed onto his shoulder and dragged him under. He fought back and according to emergency responders, his pregnant wife jumped in to help him, eventually getting him back on the boat. And while speeding back to shore, they did their best to stop the bleeding. The bleeding is somewhat controlled, basically a big chunk taken out of his shoulder. Back on land, Marathon Fire Rescue crews were the first to treat Eddie before he was transferred to Monroe County Fire Rescue and then brought to Trauma Star Air Rescue to be flown to Ryder Trauma Center. Luckily, they actually had, I believe it was uh, a nurse is what we were told on the boat who um, applied that life-saving pressure to the wounds. It was uh, a pretty severe injury. Um, the patient was uh, in critical condition. 
Uh, the bleeding was controlled when the patient was picked up. Shark attacks are rare occurrences, especially in areas like Sombrero Key, where fishing and chumming aren't allowed. But experienced fishermen like Captain Jack Callion know you are taking a chance every time you jump in the water. This isn't a ride at Disney World, okay? There's inherent risk, okay? And sharks is one of them. So Andrew Eddy, we have not been able to get an update on his condition because his family has been asking for privacy. But we can tell you this was a very, very bad injury. The good news is when he was taken into that uh, helicopter to be brought to Ryder Trauma Center, he was alert. He was able to speak with the people that were caring for him. And again, no word really on how exactly this happened. Obviously a freak accident in this situation. Live in Isla Mirada, I'm Ian Margol. Local Indeed. You know, you hear stories about women when they're having babies and how they tell the, their husbands to, you know, never touch them again. Leave me alone. How could you do this to me? And this woman loves her husband so much she saved him. That's nice. Wow. That is it's a nice story. That is not just nice, but heroic. It is heroic. And not only that, I would like to acknowledge how apparently the Tiger King's new name is Captain Jack and he's a fishing <laughs> guide in that piece. So good. Oh, well, I, I mean, one of the things that we, we absolutely must do if we're going to do a story about a pregnant woman that is so tough that she literally saved her husband from a shark attack, I think that we probably should celebrate with a song, Matt. All right, but I'm not going to like it. Okay, that's enough. All right. But it's too late now. It's stuck in the head. So good. Just had to. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Joining me now is uh, a guest for conversation uh, that I think goes into a place that might surprise you. If I say, hey, I'm going to bring a climate campaigner on the show, I think most people will hear that from a place of, oh, man, more tree hugging. Oh, man. You know, like th this, this pain in the butt. And I promise you this conversation is not that. And I think you're going to be surprised uh, how much uh, Peter and I have in common when we talk about 2 billion trees. Uh, Peter McCartney is a climate campaigner. He's with Wilderness Committee. And um, and thanks for coming on, Peter. I really appreciate you uh, sharing some time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, first things first, on the video call here, um, I got to describe to Matt uh, so he can know that he is with a ginger brother, a great big red beard, as handsome as can be, and and long red hair, just like Matt MacArthur. So um, it's uh, uh, he, he he should know that he's in good company today. Looks good on you. Hey, thanks. Have you always been a beard guy, or has it been like uh, is this like just something that you just did recently in life? Because mine was big like yours. I just got rid of it in January, and I'm growing it back. Uh, ever since I could grow a beard, I've had one. I have a pretty oh, big yeah. baby face without it. So, um, yeah, ever since I was about 21. I don't know if you can work in climate campaigning without a beard these days. It looks good. It seems to fit. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, fit, fits the image people. I don't even need the lower thirds when, uh, I get on TV. People know I'm an environmentalist. Oh, that's so good. All right. So, um, the conversation about 2 billion trees, it seems like it's one of those pieces of the puzzle that is, um, being blown way out of proportion in all the wrong reasons. So I wanted to invite you on to talk about does 2 billion trees make a difference? Is 2 billion a lot of trees? Because it seems to me to be like a lot of trees. Um, what's the impact of that? We'll dig into all those things. So when the government said 2 billion trees, I mean, you work in your career, in your personal life to have an impact on climate responsibility and climate change. So how does that land with you? Um, I mean, I think it's great. Um, certainly, 
uh, you can't be against planting trees, but at the same time, I think in particular for this government, it's a bit of a, a smokescreen um, for some of the climate action that they're not taking. And, uh, you know, that that's disappointing. So it, if it's going to be used as a way to justify, you know, continued uh, inaction on climate change, then I, I don't think it's all that helpful. What kind of um, what kind of action are they not taking um, that you folks in, in this in the climate um, campaign would like to see instead or what promises have they not fulfilled? Well, ultimately, I mean, they've got that 2050 deadline for net zero um, that they've come out with now. And, you know, we need an actual plan to make it there. There's lots of big talk um, about, you know, innovation and sort of things that climate policy wonks kind of call fairy dust um, that, oh, we'll just get there, you know, eventually somehow. Kind of like how we said budgets balance themselves. (laughs) The climate will balance itself. Exactly. You know, we need we need an actual plan. And to be honest, um, you know, the oil and gas industry is the single largest polluter in this country and it needs to not exist in 30 years. And that that has some major implications for a lot of people. Um, But the truth is, you know, the world has to stop burning this stuff and it has to stop burning it incredibly quickly. And so what we're really looking for is a plan. Like, what are we going to do afterwards? And how are we going to take care of all the communities that rely on this industry? When we get into that on this show, we always try to break it down from burning fossil fuels, you know, in our cars to get around, uh, the convenience of it versus the use of plastics uh, in general life, because plastics are included in all of the things. Kind of no matter which way you look at it, there's a plastic somewhere. Um now, to do that in 30 years is basically to reinvent all of these pieces of the puzzle. So is there a priority in, in your campaign of, you know, down the line of, of where these things change, like burning gasoline in cars, for example? Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is we have substitutes for any of the burning of fossil fuels. Um, you know, the plastics are, are coming. Uh, we already have plastics that are compostable. They're made out of corn husk. Um but but really what the climate movement is focused on and what's what's damaging the climate is burning the thing. Um, we already have electric vehicles, um, you know, more transit and active transportation is uh, for people in urban areas, a way that they can stop burning fossil fuels. Um, but, you know, I think what when you're in a hole, you have to stop digging. And so what we're looking for from this government is, you know, freeze expansion. We don't have to stop burning oil and gas tomorrow, um, but we do have about 30 years to figure out how we're not going to be doing that anymore. And so instead of making it harder and harder for us and making that um, that descent, you know, faster and more unplanned, let's actually figure this out. Uh, let's stop permitting new expansion, you know, stop building LNG terminals on the West Coast, stop building tar sands pipelines so that we can get a handle on this and and sort of gracefully have a managed decline of this industry um, and find another way to put people to work, uh, building the green economy that we all know is necessary. So uh, he had sort of spoken, he, the prime minister, had spoken about that. It was time, right? It was time for all these things and then his thrown speech. So everyone's waiting to see what comes of that. Um, So I'm just going to bang off a couple of quick questions because these are the first text messages that I'm going to receive always uh, from the the people around climate. Um, Now, around the world, there are way worse uh, offenders, if you will. Not to say that we're not clear. And that gives us an excuse. I'm just simply saying that 
you know, in the perspective of, of around the world, how do we, how do we become so clear when people will just go elsewhere to get the fossil fuels and do it? You know, I think um, Canada is the fourth largest fossil fuel producer in the world. Um, so the thing that is causing this problem, the thing that is killing people, we produce a lot of it. We are not, you know, this tiny fraction of emissions. It, you know, we are a major producer of fossil fuels. And in the short term, you know, countries like uh, like China or India might try and get that somewhere else. Um, but this is about Canada and it's time for us to lead. And more importantly, it's time for us to position our economy so that, you know, we don't all of a sudden when China and India don't need our oil and gas anymore, which is coming faster than we think, um, you know, we don't have this sort of catastrophic collapse. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm curious the perspective. It's always what we're here for, right? And you did say the word lead, and that's such a big word for me. So I appreciate that. So the economics, all the economic stuff aside, the only other thing to ask you about then would be electricity. Um, with cars, for example, with electricity and cars. Um, how do the climate uh, campaigns look at the batteries? Because the, the mining of batteries and some of the minerals that are going on in the current battery technology is clearly not going to fulfill the end game that everyone's looking for because it is so bad in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the mining that goes into batteries is um, has major environmental impacts. It could be done better. Like, like we have to be clear about that, that, you know, there are ways to get this stuff out of the ground that don't involve the massive pollution uh, that we see. It's just they cost more. And unfortunately, um, you know, our economic system is not set up for companies that actually want to, you know, put this um, mining waste through a subterfuge and uh, uh, collect uh, all the pollution out of it to exist. Um, so, you know, there's some changes in incentivization in our economic system that have to happen. Um, but the truth is, you know, yeah, there are lots of environmental impacts to electric vehicles um, and, and the batteries that uh, we're relying on. We need to find better ways of um, producing batteries and we need to find ways to get around that don't, you know, require everyone to have their own personal electric vehicle. Um, wow. I think Isn't that the key, right? Has really come a long way in embracing things like public transit, um, yeah. active transportation, so that you know we can do this without uh, just reproducing the same problem that we have now uh, in other ways. Yeah. Well, responsible living. I think most everybody can agree that we, as humans, regardless of where they land on a political stripe. Uh, can agree that we can be more responsible and find ways to be successful. So that's really cool. All right, we got here because of trees and wanted to talk about 2 billion trees. So 2 billion trees seems like a lot of trees to me. Does that not seem like a lot of trees to you to promise to be able to plant in the ground? Have you ever been around uh, planters? Because I mean, I've seen, I have a couple of friends that have done it. They look like they're kind of packing newspapers, right? They've got like the two sacks on the side and up they go and they got the shovel and they drop them in one at a time. It seems to me that Two billion is a pretty big number. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, I mean, it definitely has a lot of trees. I think there's around three trillion trees on the planet. Um, so you know, it's a it's a sizable chunk of the the total. Um, it is definitely ambitious. And yeah, you think about those tree planters; they're getting paid what twelve cents a tree. It takes them, you know, thirty seconds a minute to plant one. Um, it's a lot of tree planters and it's a lot of jobs. Um, yep. 
so yeah, you know, I think it, it is an ambitious goal, and especially in a in a country like Canada, um, you know, we we've got the space for it, and uh, it just needs to come not at the expense of um, some of the biodiversity and in, in ecosystems that we've already uh, got going on in Canada. So does it um, does it does it seem like a bit of a cop out? I mean, there's been an awful lot of talk about. Um, you know, 2 billion trees over the last few weeks, because I think the prime minister got caught on an old promise, frankly. And, you know, I tried to look up how much does a tree cost. All I could find out for a number was how much does a tree cost planted. And it ranges anywhere from 20 cents to like 250 a tree. Um, you know, so it seems like a reasonable investment. But here's the question. And same thing with carbon offsets for me, is that this seems to be a delay to me, it seems to be there's money better spent elsewhere. Yes, we should be planting trees. Uh, in BC, reforestation is not only uh, an environmental decision, it's a sustainability decision. But the reality is, is that this is a 50-year plan here before we get return on investment. And it seems to me to be a bit of a cop-out because it looks pretty. Where does that land for you? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, it, it's a distraction from the more important uh, concrete questions about climate action that we need to have and that conversation about um, oil and gas and, and what we're doing next. And so, you know, politicians love planting trees because it's fairly cheap. It creates, um, you know, sort of jobs and uh, who couldn't agree with planting a bunch of trees, but, you know, it's, it's being used to sort of justify continued, um, in action and, del and delay on, you know, really the crucial question, which is what does an economy that is not putting carbon into the atmosphere actually look like? What would be one thing if you could choose the government to do today? Say the 2 billion trees is $4 billion. And just rough numbers based on the planting a tree cost. If there was $4 billion bank account right now for, you know, a climate guy like yourself, where would you like to see that go? That is a great question. Um, you know, more than anything, I think where I would put that money is to invest in some of the communities that uh, are currently relying on oil and gas and allow them to have a path forward of community economic development uh, that they can continue to be a community um, without this industry. I'm I'm in Fort St. John right now. And let me tell you, you know, if oil and gas disappeared tomorrow, this city would be absolutely hammered. And so what we need, uh, I th and what I think the government should be funding is, you know, sort of a cohesive plan for how a place like Fort St. John or Fort McMurray, um, you know, or, or Newfoundland and Labrador, continues to thrive in a future that doesn't include oil and gas. Um, and so, you know, that might not directly reduce emissions, um, like, but I think that $4 billion spent on that would move the conversation about how we need to reduce emissions uh, a lot further, because that's where we're stuck right now. Uh, this is kind of like just, I guess, a man to man question. So you work hard all the time. And I, I like some of the things that you've shared with us in that, you know, you've, you've said leadership and you've talked about the economy and how we can't decimate communities. But at the same time, there's got to be th this complacency piece of the way some of the financial decisions have gone. You've also said that, you know, there is a real financial reward system that is a bit of an issue here. And so I, I those pieces to me 
I think resonate with everybody, no matter what side of this discussion they're on. I propose that there are no sides in this discussion. I mean, I'm a guy who grew up in Fort McMurray. I live in Alberta. I've seen the benefits of all the things. I mean, I've got business owners that own power plants that are friends of mine. But at the same time, I lived on Vancouver Island in Port Alberni, and I've got friends that do fishing tours. And they need fuel for boats, and they need fish to catch. They need everything to work. So I always propose that there really aren't sides in this. And if we could look at it that way, it'd be really great. So my man-to-man real question for you is, this to me seems to be a people problem. A couple things. The economic system that we live in today in this world is starting to show it's ugly. And we're seeing it again and again and again. The people in this world, maybe because of that or as part of that, are living lives that are, are they're struggling. People are struggling in their minds. They're struggling in their relationships, in the school systems, and so much more. And how hard is it for you as a, a guy who's worked so hard to represent your belief systems plus be a leader in the world of responsible living and climate change, to look at the human problem here and look at the environmental problem here, because it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, right? Like, what do you fix first? If you, if you could help the humans get healthy and understand the perspectives, and I boil that down to one thing only, if we all could learn to listen and not be so afraid, we probably all would make much more responsible decisions. So how hard is it for you every day when you go to work and you're just trying to talk to people that can't listen, cause and effect? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's frustrating because it shouldn't be an issue that there's two sides. Um, scientists have, have told us what needs to be done. And I think the conversation about that we should be having is how it gets done and how we, we bring people along, right? Um, and you're, you're totally right in the fact that the same systems that aren't working for the planet are also not working for the people who live here. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you are, uh, if we don't solve climate change, we are going to kick a whole bunch of people that are trying to get out of poverty right back down into it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it is incredibly tough to try and grapple with these questions because there is no easy answers here. Um, but it, it's so frustrating that you can see so clearly uh, these are the conversations that we need to be having, and yet our political systems um, are almost incapable of addressing them. The, you know, the, the change that we need isn't actually on the ballot because it requires a, a transformative um, plan for our, you know, our economic system. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard not to get, um, I guess, kind of written off as, you know, some high in the sky utopian when what I'm, what we're talking about is you know real people that need to continue to have a quality of life that is increasing uh, at the same time as our emissions are going down yeah. and you know that that's all we need and I think we can do that I I really do um, I believe that there is a way that this can all work um, that actually brings people up but you know, our expectations might need to be different. We might not um, be able to have a week-long holiday in Mexico every winter. Um, but, you know, maybe we actually get enough time with our families 
that we don't need to drag everyone away from their lives just to spend time together. Well, that we don't um, have to leave our homes to just have a good time. We could actually be at our homes. Isn't that a crazy notion? Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we're learning a lot about this, uh, this year about, you know, what's actually important and, uh, and you know, what our quality of life, uh, does rely on. And, and that's the people around us. Well, I love the conversation, Paul, um, or excuse me, Peter, I, um, there is so much more that we can uh, talk about. You're welcome to come on, on the show with me anytime. The reason why is because this conversation that I have had before we got on the air and on the air with you is not about morality. It's not about being bad. It identifies that if we go this way, we crush uh, certain uh, economics of the economy, people, classes, uh, all that stuff. We go this way, we crush certain people in the economy, communities, and classes of people. So it, there has to be a better way that we can somehow change the conversation and uh, maybe we can maybe we can do that here. That would be awesome if we could, because I don't pretend to know what's right. All I know is that what we've been doing has been working in some ways and absolutely has not been working in other ways. So thank you for sharing the time. I really do appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Jason Manawas. Moana. <laughs> All right, so... Alberta is creating a tip sheet for Halloween amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. Here's Alberta's Dr. Dina Hinshaw offering some advice for celebrating a safe Halloween amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's a clip. I know Halloween is a favorite day for many, and I know many parents are already planning their children's costumes and activities. I have no plans to suggest that Alberta cancel Halloween this year. My own children would never forgive me. In many ways, Halloween is actually safer to celebrate than other holidays. Unlike Thanksgiving, for example, where families traditionally gather inside to enjoy dinner together, most of Halloween's activities take place outdoors and largely within one family. However, we do need to make it as safe as possible to celebrate this year. That is why we have created a page with tips and advice on how you and your family can enjoy a Halloween that is still fun and scary, but for the right reasons. You'll find it at alberta.ca forward slash Halloween. We've also created posters you can print and put in your window or on your door to let trick-or-treaters know if you're handing out candy this year or not. If you choose to hand out treats or if you have children trick-or-treating, please review the tip sheet in detail. However, let me summarize a few key points right now. First, please avoid hosting group get-togethers or Halloween parties. Instead, trick-or-treating should be done within your own cohort or family and staying within your community. And avoiding contact with common touch points like doorbells or hand railings. Dressing up and trick-or-treating is the best part of Halloween for many children. And this can be done safely by choosing costumes that allow children to wear a non-medical mask. Like elsewhere in public, Try to minimize your contact with others and maintain two meter physical distancing whenever possible. If you're handing out candy, wear a mask. And if the weather is warm enough, consider handing out treats outside on your driveway or front lawn. Try to get creative and have fun with the ways to minimize the risk of exposure that comes when giving out candy. Like the candy slide I mentioned earlier last week, earlier this week. And please use prepackaged candy, not homemade treats. Yeah, so uh, good advice there from uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Yeah. Um, hopefully, 
You know what that um, means? Everyone. All the dads in the world, man. Dad tax is back. Yeah, baby. Candy heist. Halloween da- oh, Halloween dad tax is the best part about being a father. Oh, man. I still, I still remember in elementary school when like I'd do homework uh, for people just to get extra extra candy. Um, yeah, that was not fun because I had extra homework. So, uh, But yeah, hopefully everyone's following that advice for uh, Halloween. Stay safe out there, guys. Cool. Can we do Melania Trump here? Let's do it. All right. So Melania Trump is uh, is a uh, I don't know if you've heard of her. Uh, she's married to some dude. Anyway, um, even though that she's come down with COVID nineteen and all these things, this this story was sort of bubbling under. It's a another one of these conversations that was recorded that nobody knew about. But Stephanie Wilson, who wrote the book Melanie and Me, recorded this conversation, and. Um, if I could ever imagine what Melania would sound like, this is this is exactly what I would imagine what it sounded like. So just listen to the conversation. And um, this is what sort of made the news before she got diagnosed with coronavirus that I think might slide under the radar a little bit. So here you go. They say I'm uncomplicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. It's, Where it's, I am, I put the, I'm working like a, Asthma, asthma, I know. Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f- about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? Yeah, but go ahead, 100%. You have and no then, choice. And, okay, and then I do it, and I say that I'm working on Christmas, uh, planning for the Christmas, and they said, oh, what about the children that they were separated? Give me a break. Don't, uh, where, where they were saying anything when Obama did that? I know. They, they, I cannot go... I I was trying to get the, the kid reunited with the mom. I, I, I didn't have a chance. Needs to go through the process and through the law. But here's my thing. Hear what you just said. But instead of that, if, if, you just your messaging. You you were so loved. You they were. would not do the story. We put it out. They would not do the story. Until you would not believe it. They would not do the story because no, they are not. They would not do the story because they they are they are against us because they are liberal media. Yeah, if I go to Fox, they will do the story. I want to go to Fox. Anyway, uh, that was a thing, and that kind of happened. And uh, I kind of admire her passion for. I mean, I love Christmas, so I would disagree with her, but I admire the passion for. Uh, you know, who gives an F about Christmas decorations? At least she's, you know, sticks to her guns. Give her credit for that one. But um, anyway, uh, she's come down now diagnosed with coronavirus with the president of the United States. And take a wild guess. The only thing that's going to get talked about on uh, the rest of the day today is going to be exactly that. And I tried to count. because They say uh, 6,000 tweets a second on Twitter. And since 1 o'clock Eastern, when that story broke, I've been trying to time it and see how many tweets per second because there's a counter of how many tweets per second are going out. And my best estimate from counting was over 11,000 tweets per second uh, the first few hours when that news broke. So uh, that is also a thing. All right, I'm going to hand it back to you because uh, this last one here, in case you I just don't mean to steal your thing. Sorry. Um, I know I just kind of threw this last one at you, but you can uh, you can take oh, it. Oh, no, uh, for, for sure. Um, and I think uh, with, with all that... Uh social media talk the funniest part about the um well not the funniest part i mean we don't make, want to make a joke of, out of it but um the, the first person who tweeted yeah the first person who tweeted about uh, u.s president donald trump 
and um, First Lady uh, Melania Trump ha- being diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 was an NBA reporter. And that's blowing up all over Twitter because he, he tweeted it out before the president tweeted it out. So people are trying to make some conspiracy theories on why that happened. How but I just that thought happen? that was pretty funny. That I have no that, idea. How does that happen? Yeah. But the funny thing is, is this guy is competing with another reporter for like who who always gets the first NBA scoops. Like, oh, he he broke the news first. He broke the news first. And it's funny because he just he, he's he's probably ahead now because he broke. Yeah. Probably one you get of the a couple extra stories. points, right, for one of the biggest stories of the year. Absolutely. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, cool. So um, he's making fun of masks here. All right. So yeah. So this is uh U.S. President Donald Trump at the U.S. presidential debate. Uh, poking fun at Joe Biden about uh, wearing masks. I don't have. To, I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking two hundred feet away from him, and he shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. So the irony of this is that the montages that will be put together by some incredibly talented people throughout the course of the day today are going to be mind-blowingly amazing. Of all the things, including the, it's like a miracle. It, it's like a miracle. <laughs> It'll just go away on its own. Like all of these things are going to be, I think my, I saw more like Stephen Colbert doing Trump than I do um, <laughs> sound like Trump. Um, but it's, it's literally going to be the most amazing montage day of audio and video clips that we've ever known in our lives. Can we just agree? Because I think that's actually a thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, it's going to, I can't wait for the rest of this day to get started because I know that you know, on all the morning shows that are just getting ready for all the stations we broadcast on from Vancouver to Calgary to Edmonton to Kamloops to Winnipeg to Toronto, London to Hamilton. <laughs> Everyone's chomping at the bed to get at all this stuff and be able to talk about this today. So it's absolutely remarkable. There's one text that I did want to bring up. Um, it's from Trucker Dan. It's his point of interest. Everybody's using the term cohort. Uh, how, how many people realize that that means 600? Okay, so Dan, I'm going to explain this, Dan, because you have a good point, but it is not inclusive of all the info. I Only because I said, what is actually a cohort when this came out a bunch of weeks ago when they're talking about sports and schools and all these different things? So a cohort is a group of people banded together, and they're treated as a group by definition, okay? Now, the original cohort was a military unit, so a tenth of a legion, six centuries was exactly the number. And so that's where the 600 that Dan's talking in, in his super smart brain, texting in and contributing, a cohort was usually used to refer to ancient Roman military units consisting of three to 600 soldiers, a cohort of soldiers. So it's still a group. You see the, see the thing? A grouping, a category, or a group of people that have something in common, um, or a group of people with common statistical characteristics. That's what a cohort is. But to Dan's point, because it was so incredibly creative into the definition of the word as a word guy, um, I salute you, sir. And uh, get it? See? Soldiers. <sighs> General MacArthur nice. salutes you. There we go. Lord General <laughs> MacArthur gives you the salute to <laughs> Sir Trucker Dan. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.